with this tiny home plan, I'm going to retire 10 years earlier. And then you tap into like, yeah, you got passion project for the rest of your life. Greetings, Earthlings. Take me to the leader in you. Today, we're going to start our exploration of the tiny home movement and how more communal living in smaller spaces is actually a big solution to the housing crisis that is affecting the entire planet. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. And I support startups in the energy transition with my PR firm, Technica Communications. And I support all genders in this space with women in clean tech and sustainability. And I spend a lot of time working on this podcast for you. So thank you to Resource Labs for having us on the network and welcome to all you earthlings who found us there. If you're curious to support the show, you can always go to our Patreon page and become a subscriber. You can subscribe to our newsletter. You can follow us on social media, engage with us there. Let us know what shows you want to hear about and what um, topics are of interest to you. Now, for those of you who know me, you might understand why I'm so keen on this topic. I live in a tiny home myself, although we're not very stationary. We move around a lot, uh, maybe too much, but you know, it's worth it to see the country. Um, we're in Alaska now, and so that's very exciting. Although it was a very, very hard road to get here, literally. The Alaskan highway is very unforgiving. So uh, I wouldn't say that this lifestyle traveling around a lot is for everyone, but when you do it, you make the world worth the country in this case your living room. And when I first thought about moving on to an RV, I was concerned that I was going to miss all my stuff. And honestly, I don't miss much at all. I, I don't miss my big bedroom. I don't miss my big office, all of my kitchen appliances. Um, I, you know, I miss my plants. I will say that, and I miss about two pairs of shoes that I regret um, giving away. But other than that, you know, it's been really amazing. And not everybody is going to move around, uh, but that doesn't mean tiny home living doesn't have its benefits because unless you've been living under a rock for the past decade or more, actually, you would know we are in a housing crisis globally all over the world. Housing prices have grown faster than incomes, and there's no sign of that stopping. And that's resulting in 1.8 billion people not having adequate housing. Now, to put that into perspective, Tokyo, the world's largest city, is home to 40 million people. So, I bet you're doing the math right now. 1.8 billion people? Well, you need four Tokyos for that, or more, more than four Tokyos. So a lot has contributed to this crisis, and it's been going on for decades. And in my mind, these main causes are that the cost of everything has, to build a home has gone up, land, labor, materials, lending, and this results in lower incentives for builders to build those uh, lower income or less costly homes that would be in more demand, but they have smaller margins. So there's less incentive for a builder to spend their time building that type of property. Meanwhile, other people around the world have looked at real estate and homes 
as investment properties. They don't live in them. They just own them. So that also drives up the prices. This has rental costs going up because fewer people can afford to buy a home. So you have more people renting. And this is in most developed countries. In fact, in Asia, some of the fastest growing cities, renters spend more than half their income on housing costs. 50% of their income goes to housing. Think about that. It's crazy. Meanwhile, in India, 24 people a minute are forcibly evicted from their homes. Staggering. So how do we get out of this crisis? What's the solution? Well, people will tell you that uh, we need to build 96,000 new affordable homes every day to house an estimated 3 billion people if we're going to have adequate housing by 2030. That is a lot of housing. You're talking of millions of homes. And, you know, we're already building 5.5 billion square meters of housing every year, but it's not enough. And then if you think about how the built environment accounts for roughly a third of annual greenhouse gas emissions globally, you can understand why this is striking a chord with me. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. So let's think about this. If we're on track to deplete the global carbon budget by the end of this decade, and construction is accounting for more than 30% of those emissions, then we have to think differently about housing. And we're not just talking like different materials or, or what have you. I'm saying fundamental rethinking of how we form neighborhoods and how we live. So I have someone to speak with us today who is always on the cutting edge of things. And granted, this is a very cutting edge topic. So she's perfect to get us started on exploring how we're going to live bigger lives in smaller spaces. Lindsay Wood, and I am the tiny home lady. And a typical day for me right now is hanging out in Arizona in this beautiful tiny home community that we're launching. That's Lindsay Wood, the tiny home lady. And she started her tiny home journey as a gauntlet. It was brutal. And most people would not have lasted through to the end. They would have given up and found a, an apartment to rent. Um, and she and her husband made plenty of mistakes along the way. They had several mishaps. And all of that experience transformed her into the expert she is today. Now she's passing home that knowledge to other people who are looking to downsize or add an existing, another space to their property uh, for family members or rentals. And that's all become what's known as the Tiny Home Academy. We were bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. There we were living in Marin County. Everything around us was a million dollars, which would have been fine if I would have wanted to continue a job or a, like you absolutely, when you get into that kind of mortgage, you got to maintain that kind of salary to pay for it. And I just wasn't really dedicated enough to like have that. I also had more entrepreneurial desires. I wanted to travel. So everything really kept pointing smaller home because we did have a $120,000 budget. 
And back in 2017, that was buying a 32 foot, eight and a half wide with solar panels and all the bells and whistles to be off grid or what we like to call boondocking. Uh, being able to be somewhere and dry camp for a certain number of days. Your rig can do it far longer than we did because the way we designed our freshwater tank. <laughs> well, depending on the temperature outside, we can't do it very long either because as soon as the sun hits this thing, it becomes a hot box. And with AC, draws a lot of power. So yeah, it, you need the perfect temperatures to be able to boondock for a long time in this vehicle. Yes. Yeah. Boondocking without consuming a lot of energy. Absolutely. I'm with you. I've had a camper too. We're like, okay, it's Colorado. It's really hot down here. We'll drive up to the mountains so we can work. Oh wait, but we're not near a Wi-Fi because we didn't get Starlink yet. So. <laughs> All these things you have to think about. Yeah. But for most people, they're not going to like go and travel with their tiny homes. So I want to be very clear. That was our foray into it. And so once we realized after six months of traveling, we went from California to Texas up through Colorado, we did like 12 tiny home events. And I can tell you when we left March, 2019 for Texas, we had no events planned. And by the time we were done in October, November, we had already done 12. So somewhere in the universe was like, Hey, I think we need some of your education about how to find the right builder because when we found our builder in 2017, 2018, we contract with them, 2019, uh, sorry, 2018, the middle of the year, they went out of business in the middle of the build. So we went from custom build to surprise DIY. And that was a bit of a, of a pill to swallow, but we did eight months of finishing our home. That really gave us the knowledge of what we experienced. And I wanted to help other people avoid that same problem. So that's where this whole Go Tiny Academy was born out of. So Lindsay, you, you started this journey when you bought your tiny house uh, pre-pandemic and you lived in it for a few years. And I remember, I remember we sent you off, you came to visit us and you, you sent you off and I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. Um, uh, what lessons did you learn from that experience that helped you, helped inform what you do now with Go Tiny? It was quite a journey. I remember that day we had an entirely different truck, which was not the right one. I mean, there's so many lessons in our journey, uh, but it really started with where I think a lot of people find themselves either, you know, I, I've done a lot of research in this area. Uh, there's four main reasons of going tiny. There's home ownership, financial freedom, which usually are tied together, simplicity, just reducing the amount of stuff, the footprint, uh, for some people that might be retirement, they've already lived that bigger lifestyle and home and all that stuff. And then travel. And then others that are that are out there as well. And so for me, we were living in Marin. It's very expensive. To maintain that lifestyle would have meant that I had to maintain a specific career and all of that. And we just decided that the idea of travel, but owning our own home and having it be designed by ourselves really meant that the tiny home was more of the path. Uh, our plan was to go from California to Texas, had no events planned whatsoever. By the time we arrived back that year in November, we had already done 12 different tiny home events, conferences, festivals. And really I was the one that was put on stage saying, here's the top things you might want to consider when hiring a builder. <laughs> Take it from me. <laughs> and so when we finally landed back in Northern California, 
that's when I started doing these discovery calls, you know, learning more about what people were looking for. At that time, I had no idea that I was going to create the three pillars of going tiny, the land, the finance, and the build, because you've got to be able to check off all three. And oftentimes it's a bit of like pat your head, rub your belly, because if you get the wrong zoning on the land then the right, the wrong builder, and then you need the right financing. So all three have to kind of work harmoniously within budgets and all those things and luxurious materials and all of the designs that you want and the layout to make the dream happen. They know the Instagram story and they're like, oh, I want that, right? Instagram, YouTube, TV. I mean, we got it all and they're all very shiny and beautiful and they're out in like cute little fields and not really placed, right? Like what's really possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me, who are the types of people that are adopting this trend now? Like what's happening in the tiny home space and what are you seeing in terms of the people that are starting to shift their lifestyle to a smaller footprint? I'm going to start with those that are looking at retirement because I feel like that's the biggest number. Um, I've had so many, especially, oh my gosh, I say the future of tiny is female because it's just a lot of ladies. And if they're connected to a partner, it's usually they're like, honey, look at this. And they're like, the honey's back. They're like, I'm not sure if I want to go small. That's the exact opposite of the mobile home RV world where it's like, like, because I used to do that kind of work for PR. So I would sit in one of the RVs and, and the husband would be like, see, look, honey, it has a bigger kitchen, right? The, the guy's all in. He's just trying to find the, the vehicle that the wife is going to agree to. So I think it's really interesting that you say the tiny home world is the opposite. Absolutely. And in all ages, I would say more so my 50 plus are your more single women. Or women, you know, we'll get into another. So just like more of your single female looking at retirement. I'm just thinking of my dear client right now. We'll call her Jay. Um, but she lives in a home in Santa Rosa. She doesn't use two of the three rooms. And she literally clocked like where, what parts of the home that she does use. So she could think in her mind, could I really live smaller? And so she's pretty much figured out, yes. What I'll do is I'll go get my dream tiny home, this 400 square foot, like big, 10 wide, 40 long uh, tiny home. It's going to have a downstairs bedroom, big kitchen, the whole thing, big living room. And that's going to be probably in the like $200,000 range. But for her, she'll live on another piece of property and rent out her home. Or another case, more so, they'll sell the home and then go find a place to live it, whether it's in a community or on maybe a, um, a sibling or a son and daughter's property. That's what I hear mostly is, well, my son and daughter, they have property. Well, I want to put this in their backyard. Yeah, that's really common. They've got grandkids, right? So that's a big, big part. I would say the biggest, biggest piece of, of the people that are, are attracted to this tiny home movement. And then finally, the people that are, I really want to have a tiny home. I don't have the land. I don't own it. Are they purchasing them and placing them and not moving them? Or or are they moving them a little bit, maybe seasonally or a couple every couple of years? Like what is the pattern that you notice? This is perfect because what we really gotta talk about is the wheels versus the permanent. So what I like to talk about is the building structure. Um, for those that are listening, my hands straight up in the air, like I'm, you know, doing the Pledge of Allegiance. And then my other hand is flat 
on the ground. And so I think about zoning is everything to do with the land, what's allowed and what's not allowed. And the structure is how the building is built. So Lisa Ann, you live in a beautiful motor coach. I know I stayed in it for a week. That is built to a NFPA, a National Fire Protection Agency or Association, one of those, 1192. It's literally right there on the sticker. So if you go and try to live in that in, let's say, San Diego, just downtown, beautiful San Diego, and you try to live in that in the front yard, you're not allowed to. It's just that's the sort of zoning rules. Where you are right now in an RV park, yes, all day long. So the tiny home industry that is oftentimes when we say the word tiny home, it's a marketing term. You can call a tiny home a van, a schoolie, the home you live in, the home I live in, but oftentimes people relate it to the wheels because it's come out so much. Um, there's all kinds of words, tiny homes on wheels, movable tiny homes. We just heard of one the state of Colorado is doing is home on chassis. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck to anyone that's trying to figure it out. This is why they come to me because they're trying to figure out what's allowed on the land, you know, especially if they're going to go develop something. So you know, one of the biggest things when I talk with people is, do you want it on wheels or do you want it on permanent foundation? Your land, however, will always dictate what that, that answer is going to be. You may want it on wheels because you want to move it away, but if you want to live in it or have someone else live in it full time, that's where the issue, for example, I've got in one week's time frame, I had four people that I went and did a site visit. Two of them, one of them was a Jay, my client. And she has a friend that has property. She's going to put the home on land without a permit. We call it under the radar. Another person has land in Sebastopol, doesn't want to move it. And Sebastopol does not allow the wheels. And he actually wants to appreciate the property value. So he's a really good candidate for getting a home that's built off-site, called factory built, prefab, modular. And then it's brought on wheels, placed on foundation. And this is where the biggest thing that a lot of people like, need to start with is understanding that zoning law. And it's nothing that we ever learned in school unless you really geeked out on your own zoning law of your own land. Most people. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> or if you played, if you played a, uh, what was the, um, what was the, what was the Sim, uh, Sim city? You know, if you ever played that game when we were kids, like I'm going to make a commercial zone here and my, and my industrial zone is going to be over here. That's as much, I think, as people understand. Right. Yeah. You don't think if people can understand this one, you don't put the concrete mixer next to the single family home neighborhood, right? There's a benefit for zoning. However, zoning in our culture has the history of exclusion based on race, color, religion, um, wealth, everything. Like we called it redlining. They literally drew red lines around certain areas that said, okay, this is where they're going to live. And this is sadly where the white people will live, right? And it all started, frankly enough, in Berkeley. <laughs> Ground zero for single family zoning as we know it was in Berkeley when a black dance hall wanted to be placed and they didn't want it to be go there. So they created this thing called single family zoning so that only a individual home or a family home unit could go there. And now we're unwinding that. State of California with SB9 totally breaks a little bit of that where you take one home that could be on a lot. Now you could do four, almost like multifamily. 
Um, other things like Oakland and Portland, where you do allow an RV in the backyard of a single family home known as an accessory dwelling unit. So there's more zoning breakthroughs, at least on the West Coast, that are going to make its way across the country. The accessory dwelling unit to start with is actually something we have at the state of California, Oregon, Washington, and now it's rippling across in cities, counties, and then soon more states will look at approving it like Texas. So if you're in an area where you could put something in the backyard, but it's not on wheels, well, cool, you do a small home. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's about understanding what are the laws and ordinances in your neighborhood or with the land that you want to use. So what cities do you think are changing these ordinances appropriately and who can be held up as a model for other cities? What do you want to see? I love what Oakland and Portland are doing, but if you look at those cities and you drive, just take a drive through them and look left or right when you're going on an off ramp or on it, you're going to see tent city, right? You're going to see a homeless population. And so, and I want to be very careful to say tiny homes are often saying, you know, oh, there's this tiny home village for the homeless. Those are usually shelter with wraparound services and, you know, separate bathrooms and kitchens. And then there's the tiny homes like ours where they're $100,000 plus with the solar systems and all that. And they're actually, you know, have got all the accommodations inside your home, the, you know, for bathing, uh, for sleeping, sanitation, cooking, all of the things as a habitable dwelling. Now you have a, you have a tub in your tiny home, right? Yes. Yes. This woman has a tub in her tiny home. I'm so jealous. Closest I, closest I get to that is a, a hot tub soak. If I'm going to reduce the um, square footage, I'm going to increase the luxury. That's just my thought. And I've had clients that like, I'm not sure if I should do a tub. I'm like, do you like a tub? I love tubs. Well, then why are you saying no to it? Like it's prioritizing. If you're, if you want to do tub and grand piano and all of the like, you may not be the qualified for the tiny home. Like, or you might do a 600 square foot. See, I, it's so interesting about these sizes. You know, our, my buddy Jay Schaefer came out with his like under 200 square foot tiny home. Everything since then has been like, oh, that's a big home. 2,500 square feet is the average American size home. So if you get into a thousand, you are less than half of the size of an American size home, which means lower materials on the planet, right? lower heating and cooling bills and energy and pollution that's generated from that. So you're in a good direction, but if like, you know, you need a two bedroom and you need a decent sized kitchen and a bathroom and a living room, you might be looking at a 500 to 600 square feet. That's still tiny. So back to my question about the, uh, what cities, so you said Portland and San Diego and Oakland are doing it well. And, and what are they doing specifically? The state of California and with the lead of Dan Fitzpatrick, at least with regards to the wheels. So I'm going to separate the worlds here for a second because it is an interesting, complex topic. And so we're just, uh-oh. Oh, wow. So sorry there. A power outage just happened. <laughs> Tiny home living. <laughs> Yay! We can still see you. We're still recording. Let, okay, great. There we are. We got a little bit of light from there. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to anything can happen. So one of the things about the state of California is they already have this accessory dwelling unit ordinance statewide. 
So anywhere a state is already approving something in the backyard of a single family home, that means we can add more housing. However, what the Tiny Home Industry Association has done with the leadership of Dan Fitzpatrick is really gone into these cities like San Diego, LA, San Luis Obispo, San Jose, Humboldt County, Placer County. The list is quite long and it's been growing at least since 2017. It was just one city in Fresno. And what they've done is said, okay, in addition to having an ADU that you can have in the backyard, that can also be on wheels as long as it meets standards like dual pane windows, um, regular siding, no mechanical equipment on the roof all of which you're probably hearing as a motor coach owner is pretty much saying no to RVs because it was something that was a bit of an issue. Unless you're in somewhere like Portland and Oakland where they're saying yes to all of it. The home on foundation, home on wheels and recreational vehicle like your motor coach or a trailer or a fifth wheel, any of those. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because of the housing problems that all these big cities are having. They're, they're looking to open up the opportunities for people to live in, in, in different ways uh, to help accommodate the fact that there's just not enough housing for people. Absolutely. And the, you know, the key thing is the more and more cities and counties and jurisdictions do that. The coolest thing, like Fresno did it just so we could have precedence and there'd be a documentation of this ordinance out there. Because the good thing about government, they love to copy you know, and they should, you know, they should, obviously they're going to tweak things specific for their county. So taking the city of Fresno's ordinance information and it, you know, evolving towards Humboldt or maybe Santa Clara County, it changed a little bit because the counties are much bigger. They're going from, at least in California area, you know, from sea to the mountain. So they're going to have different, you know, requirements and stipulations, especially in wilderness urban interface areas. So in those areas, they're going to say, metal or fireproof siding because we've already seen it happen so much that you know burning of of california so the opportunities of of putting in these smaller homes in backyards just creates more supply and more supply means that it meets the demand you know in san diego alone they need a hundred thousand homes in the next six years so if you take 2500 square feet the average size of a home times 100,000, 250 million square feet, they don't have it. In addition to the fact you got to add the roads, the fire, the police, the things. Oh, and then you got to take over this riparian network and this forest and that mountain or that hill and all the expenses that come with putting those utilities to those areas. So lo and behold, we've got the housing problem. We're just not going to be able to build our way in the biggest, the big size out of this housing crisis or climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. What are some of these advantages that you see? Like if we extrapolate 10, 20, 30 years into the future, the tiny home movement start, it continues to grow and blossom. How do you think that might change the future of our housing and the way people live and, and how housing is impacting climate? Big time. I say the tiny home is a solution for housing crisis and climate crisis. You know, the biggest factors of climate are your greenhouse gases, pollution, you know, all the things that are, are emanating. So if you have a big home and you need to heat and cool it, let's, for example, my parents, I love them. They've got this home in Tucson. It gets hot in Tucson. Guess what they have to keep their air conditioner at? 85 degrees. 
Now, granted, when they're there, if they're, they're not going to keep it to 85 degrees, but they have to keep it that way whether they're there or not, because everything inside, all the seals will dry up. That is a shocker to me. So there's all kinds of systems that are running, and the bigger the space, the more the systems. And I always kind of like to think of, we all live on this one planet. Now, someone else could afford a bigger home, and they can afford the utilities for that home, but we're all paying for the pollution or the extraction that is needed. Yeah, but can the planet afford it? Right. And to geek out a little bit, right, there's economics of environment. And so we're not actually charging them the actual cost of like, look, I know you can afford it in the current utility world, but what about all the other implications that it's affecting climate change? So shrink it down, build the walls even better. But we have the same housing and building materials that we've got decades ago. They've gotten better. And we know of more, like when you get into passive house technology, where you don't even use any HVAC system because the home was built in such a way where it's like the envelope so tight and all they do is a ventilation system, a heat recovery, cool thing that happens where air flows in, if it's hot or cold, the chamber and the energy exchanges, but not the air exchanges. So you get fresh air, but it equalizes what you need inside. So you're not heating or cooling that air, that kind of stuff. <laughs> we need to do in every home. Assuming the tiny home movement continues to grow and we have more people wanting to live a smaller lifestyle. Um, and so we're, we're using less energy, we're using less materials. So there's less material waste from construction. Um, it also seems to me that this would influence or change, um, the economic, uh, experience that people have. And maybe they're, you know, cause if you're not, if you don't have a big, a huge mortgage and a massive electricity bill to keep the whole thing cool, like that changes that changes how much money you need every year. Absolutely. And lets you save for retirement, help your kids go to college, go on more vacations and take a load off, right? All the things that so many people desire. However, uh, you know, a little fun fact in the 70s, the house prices were only two times the wages. Totally reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. You get the home for 150,000, you're making somewhere in the 50, 60, you know, 70,000 a year. But now, you know, there's six to eight times. Yeah. And they also changed um, the economics and made it more, made it a tax advantage to invest in homes. So a home became an investment um, versus something that, that people just really needed to live in. And so then that, that, that shot the pricing up as well. Yeah. I mean, look at the Airbnb market. Like there's, I just, I stay in them. Like I participate, I both use them and I benefit from them because I'm a super host. So, you know, however, it was like one bedroom in our home versus the entire home. And I've stayed in plenty of those homes where part of a neighborhood is just that's the entire home is an Airbnb. It's a hotel. So one of the cool things, like right now I'm in this park here in Prescott. And so there's a lot of people coming up. Someone paying anywhere in the like $1,700 to $2,000 a month right now in rent, which is totally common Phoenix, up here, you name it. They could take what they could pay here is about a thousand fifty a month. They might have a little extra electricity, unless they buy solar. And that's a whole nother conversation because I do talk about that. Like investment in solar is smart because the only thing that energy is doing is going up. 
So they can take their thousand dollars, let's take a thousand out of two thousand. The rest of the thousand could be put towards a finance payment that could be paid down pretty quickly if you're even if you're doing a hundred and fifty thousand dollar tiny home. That is going to give you a sizable home up to 400 square feet on wheels inside this park. However, that $1,000 payment is yours. You own that versus everything going out, right? So eventually, obviously, the more you pay or the quicker you pay, then now instead of $2,000 a month, you're down to $1,050 plus electricity. That changes the entire economics for people. It's like, well, now you don't have to. Uh, you don't, you, you can still choose to, but you might not feel the, the requirement to, uh, work a 40 hour job or like be in the rat race. Maybe you can pursue a passion project of yours. Um, and you can, and, and you can afford to, to, to take a little time to build up something or start a new career or something like that, because now your expenses are lower. I mean, so many people that I'm talking to are like, I, with this tiny home plan, I'm going to retire 10 years earlier. That's a big, you know, and then you tap into like, yeah, you've got passion project for the rest of your life, right? Whatever the plan is to make more money, college, retirement, all the things kind of whittle down to, you know, for most people, it's attachment to the bigger, bigger house mindset. When I see so many women standing forward and like, I want to go tiny because they may have to clean the home or, you know, deal with all the maintenance or whatever. And I feel like the men are more hesitant. And what's interesting in your reversal of a motor coach is that, you know, maybe there's something in there like, oh, smaller home means I'm less of a person. I'm less successful. I'm, and I still have those patterns go through my brain. I'm not kidding you. I'm just being honest. Like, because I had them for what? Gosh, 40 years of my life until I started thinking tiny. And only six years where I'm like living it and being a model for it. In a way, I wonder sometimes if tiny, like, okay, the American dream, white picket fence, house, two-car garage, 2.5 children, right? Whatever. One job that you have for your entire career, right? You never get laid off. Like, that's the American dream. Doesn't exist anymore. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, and we're both Americans, so I say American dream. Um, but you know, it's like, what is the new dream? Like it's not, everybody can own a home anymore. Like our grandparents did. There's, there's just frankly too many of us. And like you said, there's just not enough housing supply. And we're starting to see this in other, other countries as well. It's the population is just too high. So is the tiny home experience in a way a, a new way of thinking about that you know the dream that everybody's going after and then it gives you all these other additional benefits so what do, what do we know now uh in terms of how tiny homes operate and 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 how people are using them that could inform us in how to build uh these for the this experience for people in the future like, are there things, what are the things that cities need to do to, to make adjustments, to accommodate these, uh, these new, uh, buildings? Uh, what do we need to do as society? What would, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you, what would you do? Number one, the accessory dwelling unit is like federal, right? It's all across the lands. 
wherever you want to put a little home in the backyard and connect it to water, sewer, and electrical. A lot of people like talk about off-grid. I want them to really embrace what compost toilets could potentially do, but we've got to really educate the people on how to use them. I get it. It's not, you know, highly welcomed, but the less water we use, especially what we just experienced in California for the, you know, many years before we just had the deluge of the, you know, the atmospheric river. Um, I hope that, you know, maintains next year, but what if the next 10 years it's dry again? Yeah. Water is going to be an issue. It's an issue, period. Like the last 12 years and this kind of like buoyancy of like storm, actually now we're dealing with other problems like, oh, too much snow melt, too much water. Well, then store it better. This is a great opportunity to go from like drought to storage problems, building materials. You got to build the home better. The cool thing is the International Residential Code or the ICC, the code council that manages that, and the Tiny Home Industry Association are working to put together an initiative. So what would happen for people that want to do the wheels? They want to have like, you know, I'm going to put it on some land, but then eventually I know I'm going to move it in five years. That is a good application for the wheels. For other people that want to appreciate the property value, permanent. But for the opportunity to actually have the code council work on an international residential code that could then be approved when they immediately approve it, it's approved nationwide. So in 2024, we are going to see a big change happen. But the fact that it's only like a year out, that's a game changer for the options and that flexibility. So let's say, for example, someone wants to go and live in an RV park for a while before they find the dreamland that they're looking for. They can do both because we have that flexibility. And what would you, what would you like to see? You mentioned the composting toilets and, and I know the people I know that have them love them. And, and it is, it is just, it's just part of like an experience and getting to understand like, Oh, it's just a different way of going through that bodily function. And it's not as, you know, it's not as gross as you think it might be. What are some other reframes that you think we need to do as society to uh, support this tiny home movement to flourish? I would say mindset is such a major one. Like we can talk about building materials and all the scientific applications and how it's going to help, you know. So there's all kinds of lifestyles that you can tap into. And I think we're revising and what I like to call right-sizing our American dream. Earthlings, I am so excited to hear that cities are finally starting to recognize the legitimacy of tiny homes. Integrating these building standards into the International Code Council really does give me hope that we are moving into a new future where smaller homes are the norm. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that the housing dream of our grandparents wouldn't fit into the world that we find ourselves in. Yet, Many of us are bought into this fairy tale of a big house with a two-car garage or more, a big, big lawn, white picket fence, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, that does not fit into our current reality. So I wonder if generations from now, people are going to look back at this time and see this moment in history where housing changed from a single family, maintain it all yourself experience to one that's more communal and connected simply because we lived in smaller homes 
inside communities of like-minded people. And that's the type of place that Lindsay's developing in Prescott, Arizona, and perhaps we'll explore one of these tiny home communities in depth in a future episode. I'm sure she can hook us up with one. Now, obviously, I'm biased having downsized my life into something that's fully mobile. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to survive it when we first made the transition. But I realized that your life will expand to the size that you give it. Um, and it's almost like, you know, um, if you've got a big closet, uh, but you, you know, don't have a lot of clothes, over time, you're going to just start filling that closet. And it beca- it's kind of a subconscious experience. And, you know, if you've got a big house, eventually you're going to acquire all this stuff to fill it. And even if you choose to downsize, you know, you'll learn how to be more thoughtful with what you own. Um, yes, it was very hard to release 90% of our stuff. And um, I, it, yes, that was a hard experience. But after three years, living in a big house actually kind of feels weird to me. Like, how could I possibly fill that space with all kinds of stuff? So I encourage you to think about how your lifestyle influences the experiences you have, good or bad. Does it give you more options or less? If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same decision? What's something that you could better optimize for the realities of the climate crisis? Let us know your thoughts on social media. Let us know if you've got some thoughtful discourse about our collective home, planet Earth. We want to hear from you. So until then, Earthlings, we will see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home.